Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, and Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent. From the US, we have Sujit Indap, who is our Lex columnist there, in conversation with Alistair Gray, US financial correspondent. This week, we'll be talking about the latest developments in the Brexit debate as more bankers come out for and against. Also, we'll be looking at Credit Suisse as Chief Executive Tijan Tiam finds an unexpected portfolio of high-risk assets. And finally, in the US, a look at what the squeeze on interest rates means for margins. First, though, to that topic of Brexit. Martin, we've been talking about this for some time, and I'm sure right up until the referendum we'll continue to talk about it. But over the weekend, we've had a few new developments. Most obviously, we've had a poll done by the British Bankers Association among their members, which shows very few, perhaps unsurprisingly, thinking that Brexit would be a good idea. Yeah. So of those who responded, between 50 and 60% said they thought staying in the EU would be better for them and better overall for the UK. I think one bank said they thought it would be better to leave the EU. It was an anonymous survey, so we don't know which bank. But I thought more interesting, perhaps, was that a lot of the banks said they don't have a position on Brexit and have deliberately decided, about a third of the banks have deliberately decided they don't want to take a position on this, which I think shows just how delicate a position British banks have been put in by the whole referendum debate because they don't want to alienate 50% of their customers, potentially, by taking a firm position. So It's a bit like the echo of the Scottish referendum debate. Exactly. Laura, I mean, you've been talking to quite a few US investment banks about this topic. They are probably the most outspoken or have been up till now in terms of being anti-Brexit. Yeah, I mean, the large US investment banks in particular have been the most vocal and some of them have done it in terms of giving money to the in-campaign. Others have done it in terms of making speeches and making comments. But even within those investment banks, it has become a divisive issue because there are some within those investment banks who actually don't agree with the idea of being this outspoken on it. They feel that there is a danger that actually having all these large banks on the side of the in campaign could do more harm than anything. And they're concerned that basically people in the UK aren't going to like the idea of being told what to do by these large US banks who have a checkered past in terms of the bailouts and stuff. So I think that we may be seeing even the large US investment banks being a bit less public in their comments as we come closer to the vote. Yeah, it's interesting. Also interesting, over the last few days, there was a letter, wasn't there, from the Out campaign, which amassed, I think, 250 signatories in all. But it was a fairly underwhelming list and very few bankers, if any active bankers, actually on the list. I think the biggest name, Martin, was Mike Gagan, the former head of HSBC. Yeah, he has really disappeared off the map 
in terms of the UK banking scene since he left HSBC, what was it, uh, five, six years ago? Yeah. And he's reappeared to put his name to this letter. Lord Blackwell, chairman of Lloyds Bank, has also publicly come out and said that he thinks Britain would be better off outside of the EU. Interestingly, he wasn't on the letter this time. He just has made those comments and stressed they were in a personal capacity in the past, but uh, even he's gone quiet on this now. No. (laughs) So I'm trying to think of other bankers who have stated publicly their position. I think the Vote Leave campaign has collected quite a bit of money from the financial sector as a whole, particularly, we think, from hedge funds and asset managers rather than banks. I think banks are worried about the uncertainty. And that was reflected in today's comments from the Financial Policy Committee of the Bank of England, which didn't talk about Brexit per se. It just talked about the uncertainty around the referendum and said this was now the biggest risk to financial stability in the UK. And it said that the UK is particularly vulnerable because of its high current account deficit to funding pressure. So if there was a rise in risk premia, they talk about, as a result of all this uncertainty over the future of the UK's membership in the EU, that could push up risk premia. Therefore, it could be more expensive for the government to borrow and to fund this current account deficit. But also then the knock-on effect would be that it become more costly for businesses and households to borrow as well. So the message being you, Mr. Consumer, or you, Mr. Businessman, could become more expensive to get a loan or a mortgage, and especially if sterling weakens as well, and interest rates have to go up as a result of that. So they're painting a a fairly clear picture that the uncertainty around the referendum is bad for the city and bad for the banking sector. Very good. Well, we should probably move on now to the second topic of the day. Credit Suisse and its chief executive rather unusually admitted to having failed really to know what was on their balance sheet. Tijan Tiam said last week, Laura, that they'd found some exposures that they didn't like the look of and the implication was they'd been hidden. What's the story there? Yeah, it was a very unusual sequence of events. So we had seen Credit Suisse took these big losses on one of their portfolios in the last quarter of last year and then took big loss again in the first quarter of this year. And these were on large illiquid portfolios. So on the analyst call, one of the analysts put it to the CEO that it would have been a good idea to have actually sold these assets earlier because they did unveil a big restructuring plan in October. And given how the market was, they wouldn't have taken losses to the same extent if they had actually sold them sooner. The CEO then said he actually hadn't been aware of the size of these positions when he actually made the plan in October. He said it wasn't only him, his other top people on the management team hadn't been aware either. Now, he didn't go as far as to say they had actually been hidden, but certainly he made clear he was very unhappy that they hadn't been brought to his attention. Although he did have to clarify later in the day that the people who did the portfolios didn't breach any of the risk limits. But they have now gone back to revisit some of those limits and they've gone back to basically put systems in place so that if there were these kind of significant risky exposures built up again, it is something which the CEO and which the bank's other senior managers would actually be aware of. How does this fit into the broader debate about balance sheet risk? Because the Basel Committee has come out with some new proposals, haven't they, on risk weightings and putting flaws under risk weightings. Does that apply to these kinds of assets? 
The most recent Basel paper was around the lending book. So this is basically how you are able to assign the risk weightings to the credit book, which is loans to SMEs, corporates, mortgages. So it is a bit separate to this, but it does go to the overall culture of risk. And what the Basel committee is trying to do with these rules is basically to limit the bank's appetite for risk and to limit their capacity to take different kinds of risks because they're basically making it harder for them to assign a risk score to their own loans. They're making them do a more standardised version that is ultimately going to result in some banks taking less risk. Martin, you want to come in on that? Sure. I mean, I think broadly speaking, the comments made by Tijan Tiam will be used as evidence that these big banks are still too complex. They're too sprawling. Even the chief executive doesn't know what they've got in them. They just need to be simplified and broken up is what critics would argue. And it's difficult to take issue with that point of view when the chief executive of a big bank like Credit Suisse doesn't even know that he's got these portfolios of risky assets that have then resulted in hundreds of millions of dollars of write-downs. To be fair to Tijan Tiam, he is trying to simplify Credit Suisse in the same direction that many of his rivals are, are heading. And UBS, the big Swiss rival of Credit Suisse, is already headed in this direction by shutting down large parts of its investment bank and limiting the amount of capital it can use up, then I think Credit Suisse is heading definitely in that direction in having a smaller, less capital-intensive investment bank and a simpler business model. Our third topic for the day is a report from the US where Sujit Indap, who is our Lex columnist there, has been talking to Alistair Gray, our US financial correspondent, about the squeeze on rates. Across the banks, there's a different expectation or experience for each of them, depending on kind of their exposure to lending. So what are some of the different levels of impact across through the banks on, on Wall Street? That's right. I mean, first of all, I think it's really important to stress that low rates really are bad news for all retail banks. And there mm-hmm. isn't really much getting away from that. But it's very true to say that some are more affected than others. Among the big ones in the US, Bank of America uh, seen as being uh, among the more rate sensitive. Wells Fargo, for example, less so. That depends, to use sort of slightly jargony terms, the bank benefits more from rising rates if its assets reprice by more more at a faster pace than its liabilities do. Uh, and those assets typically are loans, right? That's- yeah, I mean, so really, on what does that mean, really? That means, well, it sort of depends on who your customers are. It depends on your deposit mix, first of all. And it also depends on, as you say, obviously, your loan mix. Like the more variable loans you've got, the more sensitive you're going to be to interest rates. And it's also other types of assets, particularly the type of investments that you hold. Right. And so while rates have been low all these years, banks have been trying to take steps to enhance their profitability. What are some of the things they can do or have done to withstand the low rates we've seen? Well, sadly, the most obvious ways is to cut costs. That's been a big theme for months. They can also shuffle around their securities portfolios, buy longer term assets, for instance. There's other things they can do. They can move into more fee-based business. If you look at some of the valuations of bank stocks, one of the, the highest is US Bank Corps. It's got a premium rating on the stock market. That One of the big reasons for that is the scale of its fee business from credit right. cards and so on. If that doesn't make investors have we're talking layoffs, shifting businesses into things that withstand 
low rates, there has been an increasing call for the big U.S. banks to possibly break up. And so uh, this is several years after the financial crisis. Banks have been hit hard by all the settlements and the litigation that seems to be finally being cleared away. And now there was this hope that interest rates would rise and profitability would, would snap back. But that doesn't seem like it's going to happen for uh, at least uh, several months or perhaps a year or more. And so there is this call now for some of these big banks with, with Citigroup, J.P. Morgan, Bank of America to actually take apart these acquisitions they did over the last, say, 20 years. What is the the core argument of those who say these banks are too big, they should break up for the benefit of shareholders? Well, we should say, first of all, the logic should really apply no matter what the macro conditions are. But mm-hmm. it, it's just when rates are so low, the retail arms are under pressure. And, and also, of course, the other big chunk of business, the investment arms, are mm-hmm. also under a lot of pressure. That just leads to more disgruntlement from investors. Has put it back on the agenda. This question. There's right. been some private shareholders called for this to be on the agenda formally at annual meetings this year. So um, shareholders will actually have a vote on this. A report out from analysts like KBW argued for a split. I mean, at, at City, uh, at City, should say, yeah, that's right. In particular, I mean, the proponents argue in simple terms that the sum of the, the parts it would be worth more than a whole. City could, for example, split its consumer and corporate businesses in the US or alternatively it could sell its various um, chunky international operations. A big argument in favour of a split up is it would reduce the um, increasingly onerous regulatory burden. And so that basically means that the big banks have a, a greater capital surcharge, if you will. So the bigger you are, the more interconnected you are, the more capital you have to hold. That's right. And you wouldn't necessarily stop being considered a a so-called GSIB, so globally systemically important bank, right. given the size, even if city were to split up, its consumer operation is still jimongous. Yeah. But the argument is that the burden would probably be less onerous because of the manner in which the regulators calculate the capital requirements. Right. And so if you've got less in capital requirements, that means you can return more to shareholders in the form of buybacks and dividends. And so actually being a shareholder of a smaller institution potentially is more lucrative for investors. That's the theory. Interesting. We'll, we'll be watching. Thank you, Alistair. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin and Laura here in the studio and also Sujit and Alistair in New York. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon and Amy Keane. Until next week, goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.